centre. <laughs> Please, can you help us raise some money too? And to his left is Bernard Pécoul, who again has a very extensive experience overseas in a number of countries working with MSF in Honduras, Thailand and Malaysia. He was in fact executive director of MSF in France and uh, then he uh, and also steered the campaign for access to essential medicines. Um, he has now moved on and is the director of a new initiative called the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. And it is in that capacity that he will be speaking this evening. And uh, to my far left is Ed, Dr. Edward Simpson, who what, did used to work at LSE, and then he escaped and went to the School of Oriental African Studies, where he's now lecturing in anthropology. And he has extensive experience of working on natural disasters. And I'm familiar with his work because he's also a grantee on an, on an ESRC research program on non-governmental public action. So for this debate this evening, I will be asking each speaker to speak for about 10 minutes. We, each speaker will speak uh, consecutively, and then we will open it up for questions and answers. And we should finish about 10 to 8. After, 10 to, after that, there will be a reception in the atrium of the um, main building of the LSE. We hope that the speeches this evening will be podcast. And MSF has also set up a blog, which will be, which will, is it up there? Is it up there? Next, on the next slide. <laughs> okay. There is an, one more? Mm -hmm. One more? Okay. This is the www.uk2.msf.org is the key reference for the blog. So if there are any issues you would like to take up afterwards in relation to the debate, please, please go to the blog and blog. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to kick off with James Cliffen, and, um, who's going to speak to us about his ideas about humanitarian aid and independence do no harm. Thank you. Um, good evening. I'm James Clifford. I'm head of fundraising for um, MedSouth South Frontier in the UK. Um, we're a humanitarian aid organisation. I hope in the, roughly the next 10 minutes to convince you um, really of one thing which is that money, or the right type of money, and the wrong type of money, and no money at all, can have profound effects on uh, the ability of organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières to help people who need that help. And I'd also like to start by saying that money in and of itself does not help anybody. So I, of course, as head of fundraising, I'm going to talk about how important that is. But if I were to walk up to you now and give you a suitcase full of money and say, please go to Darfur and help people uh, with this, you'd, there'd be a long list of questions that you'd have to ask me about what you're going to do with it. It's not, money doesn't do the work in and of itself. Uh, next. Yeah. 
I'm going to start with perhaps an unusual example of how money works or doesn't work. This is a poster for the um, uh, US TV series The Sopranos. And you might be thinking, um, has James Clifford from MedSounds for Frontier lost his mind? But um, uh, I chose this because I think it usefully illustrates everything that's going to follow. Um, HBO, the TV channel in the US that uh, creates The Sopranos, has a creative freedom which has traditionally been lacking from US network television. They are able to have uh, content, uh, violence, uh, sexual content, which is simply absent from um, normal uh, network TV in the States. And they also uh, are known for having a creative freedom and, if you like, daring, which is, uh, which is uh, uh, unusual. I have to say I'm not a, fr- a fan of the t- TV show myself, but um, I, uh, in fact, I've only watched about half an episode, but um, that's not the point. The point is, is that um, HBO has that freedom because they are a subscription channel. Um, people basically pay monthly to get the channel, and if they like what they see, they carry on paying. And that has freed HBO from the pressures um, that go with having your revenue coming from advertising. So they have money coming in from people, their viewers, on a monthly basis, and that gives them the freedom to be free from, I guess, to some degree, uh, the pressures that go with ratings, but also um, other pressures that come from the moral view of advertisers. So, in a profound way, what they do is affected by this one. That one. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Eric. Um, it's affected by the type of money they receive. Which leads me on to a question, which I'm actually not going to ask. Um, you, but um, in my job as head of fundraising for MedSouth Frontier, I um, occasionally give talks in schools, rotary clubs, French circles, uh, companies about our work, and I always start by asking a question. And the question I ask, um, I now start by saying I'm going to ask you all a question, and I know you're going to be quite shy about answering this question, because when I ask this question, there's usually a horrible silence. And... Uh, on at least one occasion when I gave a talk in a, in a large school, um, girls' school, none of the girls would answer the question. To my horror, when I turned to the collective staff, none of them wanted to answer it as well. Such a difficult, awfully difficult question. The question I ask is, what does the word humanitarian mean to you? And I, I even say, when I, before I ask the question, I even say, I've never heard a wrong answer. And I never have, except one doctor in Huddersfield who said that humanitarian is a person who eats humans. Um, um, incredible. Because it's so obvious. Hmm. Or is it? Uh, there we are. This is Henri Dunant, who is credited with the foundation of the Red Cross and the International Committee of the Red Cross. Henri was a Swiss doctor who... Um, Travelled to a place called Solferino, uh, I believe in Italy, um, because he wanted to do a business deal with Napoleon III. Um, and at Solferino, Napoleon III was too busy to talk business with Henri because there was a great, a great big battle took place. And at the end of this battle, there were about 30,000 men who were wounded, uh, soldiers who'd um, been wounded in the fighting. And it's said that uh, this is the middle of the 19th century that at that time more soldiers died in the hours and days that followed a battle than during it. 
he was horrified by the fact that nobody was going to help these soldiers because I suppose for the victorious army, their wounded soldiers were not an asset and for the defeated army, they weren't hanging around to, to look after their own wounded. Um, he wrote a book about his experiences of, of treating the wounded. He got the local population to take wounded soldiers into, I think, the local school and worked for three days and nights to treat them without sleep, it said, and wrote a book about his experiences. And this led to him um, and others uh, proposing an organization which would go into the middle of the battlefield and um, help people who needed help. Um, now, two basic principles, I think, behind this word humanitarian. Two, there are many, but one is neutrality. And that is that you're not taking sides, that you're not concerned with one side or the other in this battle and their business. In fact, you want to be irrelevant to that. Not good or bad, straight in the middle, not taking sides. And the other is impartial, which is treating people according to their needs. And I imagine that linked to that was the medical concept of triage, that is that you target those people who you can save and who most urgently need your help. So impartiality and neutrality, I think, are really the kind of founding values in my perspective of humanitarianism. It is, of course, quite easy to be neutral but not impartial. And you can also be impartial and not neutral. And you can claim to be both and be neither. And perhaps, most interestingly and worryingly, you can be both but not be seen as being both. And if you're not seen as being neutral and you're not seen as being impartial, then you're in a lot of trouble if you're in the middle of a battlefield. I'd now like to take you to um, Sudan. This photograph was taken in 2004 on the Sudan-Chad border. But I'd like to take you back, actually, to six years before. And I was sitting in a meeting of aid agencies involved in the uh, aid effort for the famine in Sudan in the Baraghazal area of Sudan in 1998. And MSF, we believe that in our jargon, um, it was the highest mortality rate that we've ever seen in our history. A lot of people were dying, and this was the monthly coordination meeting between all the aid organizations involved in that effort. A huge effort, many planes, uh, ships, um, fuel tankers, a massive effort co costing over a million dollars per day. And in the course of the meeting, which I was just sitting in and witnessing, there developed a rather fierce debate and discussion around why weren't the children in Baragazal vaccinated for measles. And this conversation went round and round in circles. And in the end, somebody, I think somebody quite brave in the UN said that they couldn't get money to vaccinate children for measles, but all the funding was for polio, and that's why they hadn't been vaccinated. The money wasn't there, they hadn't been vaccinated. This to me, this is my first experience of going to Africa, was a major shock. I suppose now after a few more years I shouldn't be so shocked, but perhaps I should, that something so essential hadn't been done for want of some dollars. Now going forward to 2004, I sat in on a meeting at DFID, the British government uh, aid body. It's invited along by one of my colleagues who's here this evening. Um, it's not my job to go to these meetings. And this was a coordination meeting, if you like, or an information sharing meeting about the aid effort in Darfur. And Darfur had been on the news quite a bit, um, on the BBC News, the ITN News, and news around the world. Great deal of concern and effort going into helping people in Darfur. And in the course of this meeting, two representatives of aid organizations there said 
that they couldn't make a proposal to DFID for funding for work in Darfur because they didn't have the money to go to Darfur to find out what was going on to write the proposal. So they didn't have the money to pay for some plane tickets and hire a car and a bit of transport and to do some assessments to write proposals. And since DFID doesn't fund that work, they were stuck. They couldn't go there to help people. And at this point, I'd just quickly like to go back to that point I made about impartiality. If one were to agree that the people in Darfur needed help very urgently at that point, something is breaking down here. Now, why was that? Well, I do sometimes when I do talks to people in MSF draw pie charts of the economics of aid organizations. Uh, You might be relieved to know that I'm not going to do that this evening. Um, But put simply, there is a certain type of money that you need to go and pay for those plane tickets to fly to a country to write that report. It's called unearmarked funds. Um, French and Belgian colleagues in MSF refer to them as proper money. And I'm running out of time. I've got to speed up. Um, And um, uh, um, golden funds, I've also heard referred to. Money that basically allows you to go where you want to. Um, It's very difficult to raise money, but it's easier to raise money when you have an emergency which is very much on the news and where it's perhaps relatively easy to get in. This is a photograph taken in Mozambique in the year 2000 when there were floods in Mozambique. And by way of contrast, in the most prosperous region of Mozambique in 2000, where 400 people died in floods, over 100 aid organizations came pouring in. There had been television news coverage of a woman who had given birth to a baby in a tree and been rescued. And basically, aid organizations were following the TV cameras, and that's a pattern that we've seen continually. Again, how does that relate to humanitarian principles? Now, quickly, a photograph um, of Chechnya. This is actually in Ingushetia on the Chechen border, taken in 2001. It's a camp for displaced people, people who fled the fighting in Chechnya, which I went to uh, this displaced camp, as it's called in jargon, Akiyurt. I was told by the UN at the time when I visited this camp that it was remote. It took an hour on on really good roads to drive there. There were no aid organizations there apart from MSF. Um, And the people there said to me, you know, you're from the UK. People know what's going on here in the UK because you're here. Shamefully, they didn't because there was no media attention and there were no aid organizations up at Akiyurt or in that region of Chechnya. And this is a pattern that we see again and again today in the Central African Republic. There's a major emergency. Where are the aid organizations? Another photograph. I'm skipping forward. Now to another issue. I'm going to run slightly over time with apologies. Um, this, thinking about working conflicts. This is a statement from Colin Powell. I've got two quotes from American politicians, if you like. I'm not making a partial point about America. They're just useful examples. Um, this is a statement that Colin Powell made to aid organizations just after the 9-11 attacks um, in America in which he said to aid organizations, I am serious about making sure we have the best relationship with the NGOs who are such a force multiplier for us, such an important part of our combat team. Now, how does that relate to Ori's vision of humanitarianism, of of being impartial and neutral, and how does it relate to the perceived neutrality? I said the idea was to go into a battlefield, not be part of it. Here are aid organizations being told you are part of our armed forces by a government that's funding them. And this is a photograph, a couple of photographs taken in Afghanistan in 2004 where you can see that soldiers are doing aid work 
and aid organisations are doing aid work, and um, they're driving white four-wheel drive vehicles, um, how can you tell the difference? And I don't think that wearing an MSF T-shirt is enough. We have today a major confusion in parts of the world between the military and, uh, if you like, humanitarian aid, which makes it very dangerous for humanitarian aid organisations because they're no longer perceived as being neutral and impartial. Going to my last example, this uh, photograph was taken in South Africa. It's the Botanical Gardens in South Africa. Here's a sign that says, don't eat the plants. Why would you have a sign saying, don't eat the plants? You don't have one in Kew Gardens. The answer is, because next to this is a, is a plant called Sutherlandia, which is a herbal treatment for HIV AIDS. It's apparently partially effective. It hasn't been researched. Here's another quote. Andrew Natsios was the head of USAID, the US government aid agency, in 2001. And he said, basically, you shouldn't give treatment for HIV AIDS to people in Africa, the people who might be so desperate to eat a plant, because they don't know when to take the pills. Now, Andrew had the um, benefit of being open and honest about what he thought. This was the position of every government at that time. No government would fund HIV treatment in Africa. And many foundations as well. I attended a presentation by a foundation about three years later, a UK one, that said they would not fund HIV treatment because of this issue of adherence. These are, this is the pillbox for taking HIV treatment. Morning, bedtime. Morning, bedtime. According to Andrew, too difficult to take. Shouldn't give it to them. How did MSF manage to provide treatment for HIV AIDS in Ethiopia and South Africa? This is Ethiopia. The answer is we had the funds to do it. And um, this photograph is taken in Humera in Ethiopia. It's a place I visited. It's where my wife worked. And here in this hospital, in, this is a region of Ethiopia on the Sudanese border, MSF provided the first free treatment for HIV AIDS in Ethiopia, as MSF did in many other countries. You might think that that's something MSF should be proud of. In fact, when our international president, Morton Rostrop, left um, a few years ago, he wrote a letter in which he said that if anyone in MSF felt proud about the fact we were first, they shouldn't be. We should be ashamed. We were just a little less slow than everybody else. Why wasn't there this action? Because basically nobody was going to pay for this. Happily, this was also the hospital which received the first funding, direct funding, for HIV's treatment by the British government, and they funded our work there. But we'd already been there for three years, and that work had been paid for, not by governments. So there was an urgent need. That need wasn't being met because people were frozen because you had to change the protocols and the policies before the money could be untapped. Now, of course, there's billions for HIV treatment in Africa. So MSF gets around these problems because we make sure that 50% of our money comes from people, private sources, our core aim is to get people to sign up to, just like HBO in the States, a monthly donation. How do we do it? We give people information about the places we work in, and we ask them to help. It is that simple. And they, in turn, seem to like what we send to them. And um, I would like to kind of say that, you know, in conclusion, really, we're getting to conclusion. This is a really positive point, right? Our ability to try to live up to, try to live up to that original vision of Ori's is helped enormously by private individuals who care. Just one slight negative point. You see this quote 
from one of our supporters, there seems to be a level of authenticity about what they write. We think this comes from a confusion that people have because they're very confused about what aid, aid organisations claim to do and what they actually do and the way that they market their work and the difference between what they present and what they do. In commercial, times, commercial terms, I guess you call this branding. And I think that the use of brand marketing to market what organisations like us, uh, MSF does, is actually quite damaging to trust. One final, final, final note. For me, what I find tremendously exciting in taking this humanitarian work forward and the, and the help that people give to it is that is today the people who do that work and indeed the people that we help, why not, indeed, can communicate directly with the people who support that work through things like this is a video posted on YouTube by a doctor working in Sudan who worked for MSF. And um, I think that, that building connections between people is a fantastic way forward. And in fact, I imagine that some of you, or you, have to say, support that work. So I want to finish by saying thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Jeff Dennis, um, Executive Director of CARE International. Thank you. Um, first of all, let me just briefly introduce myself, and I'll try and stick to 10 minutes, James. <laughs> um, I'm a development economist. Um, I then became international director of the British Red Cross, who and was hands-on involved in crises like Somalia, which was probably the saddest I've ever seen in my life, uh, Rwanda, uh, former Yugoslavia. Um, I then became a country director in North Korea for the Red Cross. Uh, I was then regional director for three years based in South Asia for the International Federation of the Red Cross and then joined as chief executive of CARE International. The reason I moved across from the Red Cross to CARE uh, was because of the longer-term sustainable development work that CARE does. Uh, yes, we're also very active and highly active in emergency situations, but I think the answer is all about longer-term work and longer-term development and building capacity. The presentation I'm going to give is uh, split roughly into kind of five bits. Um, policy trends, first of all. What I'm going to try to do is just to bring out a few key factors in these, and then there's plenty of opportunity to ask me about other things afterwards. Um, definitions of independence, dimensions of independence, um, what agencies like ours can do uh, in order to try and build a strategy for independence, and then I will try and give a conclusion at the end of it. So policy trends, uh, three on here, which I think are all extremely important. One is integrating aid into political and military strategies. Uh, NATO, through the PRT or PR, PR teams, um, in Afghanistan and a kind of copy almost of the NATO process um, in Iraq integrated aid into military operations which we consider is extremely dangerous. Uh, UN integrated missions, uh, OCHA offices and I've seen them work very well in some parts of the world but in other parts are co-located within political and military interventions for example in Afghanistan. We probably wouldn't be quite as strong as MSF, um, and I think this is our opinion. CARE says yes to coordination, no to integration, and I think that's the important difference between the two. Humanitarian coordination, 
Um, OCHA in many parts of the world is doing, I think, a very good job. I'll give you an example of one of the countries I've been to recently, which is the Chad border with Sudan. It was a good example of OCHA coordinating well with agencies within the UN system. But, um, and this is their comment and not mine, they opened far too late. I mean, there was actually a long period of time when everybody was kind of moving in different directions. You didn't have that coordination. Um, the other point on privatization of aid delivery, uh, delivery, I've had a lot of comments and I've been involved in a lot of such sessions with private security companies. Uh, they can seriously blur the edges and it divorces uh, the work that we're doing from community capacity building um, and the ex Afghanistan would be an example of that. And to my mind, it is community capacity building as soon as you can get to that stage that makes all the difference. Um, you might want to ask me afterwards, so I'll lay a question for you to throw back at me about Somalia and the Red Cross operations in Somalia where we used so-called techniques, which basically was a vehicle at the front of a, a food distribution and at the back which had guns on board. And it's a very interesting question, so please do ask me. Um, I won't dwell on this. It's a dictionary definition. Uh, it's actually much more complicated than this, and it is also country-specific. Red Cross, as I said, I spent nine years of my life working with them. I'll leave this just for you to quickly look through. The bit I wanted to emphasize comes three lines up from the bottom. Do not seek to implement the policy of any government. Do not seek. Um, it kind of needs to be stronger. It also needs to be more detailed at country level. Um, it needs to be more principled. It needs certainly to be put into a country context. What does it mean, for example, in Sri Lanka? Um, and finally, you know, there's a kind of, if, what does humanitarian space mean? Um, we've done a lot of work, and UN, OCHA, and a number of NGOs have done a lot of work in Liberia and Sudan more recently, particularly on that. I shall go back. That's it, dimensions of independence. Context. I hope this is probably the kind of most important slide in a way. Um, humanitarian versus development. Um, you can't be seen to line up with one side in a conflict, clearly, and, um, and yet in the development world, you have got to be based, from my opinion, it's got to be based on community capacity building, which is usually therefore with the local or national or regional authorities. Now let me give you a very good example from my Red Cross days in this. I think it is a good example. There are two parts of the, the Red Cross, international bodies. One is called the International Committee of the Red Cross. One is called the Federation. Uh, I was, uh, as I said earlier, in charge of the Federation office in South Asia, so Sri Lanka was one of the countries that I was running. The International Committee of the Red Cross in Sri Lanka has got to be seen to work on both sides of the border. They have got to have an office in Jaffna, which is the same size as the office they have in Colombo, the capital, and they've got to be involved in talking to both sides and explaining what their role is. What's the Federation trying to do in Sri Lanka? It's trying to build, and a good example after the tsunami would be disaster preparedness. How does it do that? It works with the government, and it's more difficult to work in the north. So if you understand the difference between the two, it is critical at the time of humanitarian conflict or disaster, uh, that you are seen to be totally independent and neutral, and yet, to build capacity in the longer term, you are almost certainly going to be working with a government anyway, and certainly regional governments. 
Um, the second point under context, high strategic interest from donors versus forgotten crises. Um, it's much more difficult for us to find space when there is a strategic interest from donors. We get more squeezed. There's a lot of donor interest. Iraq, Afghanistan would be the example of that. It is easier for us to do what we want to do in more forgotten crises. Financial aspects. Um, we have this program partnership or partnership program agreement with DFID which gives us longer-term flexible money uh, which we can spend on what we think is the way ahead in these countries and we can work certainly on policies and programs as well. It's much more difficult if we have to tender and it's a tight tender which is the increasing kind of uh, sense that the, certainly DFID are moving at the moment uh, It's more and the European community. It's more difficult for us to work in that scenario. And finally, perceptions. Um, we've been involved in, in a major study, but I'm going to give you an example which is a very sad one, uh, again relating back to the days that James and I both worked in the Red Cross, and that was in Chechnya. Um, one of the several factions at the time saw some Red Cross staff helping some injured people, and they didn't understand why they were helping those people which were actually on the other side of the conflict as far as they were concerned. So that night six Red Cross medical staff were killed in their beds. Now, in fact, what happened was that they were working on all sides and they were helping everybody, as Henri Dunant would stand for in a neutral and independent way. But that was not the perception, and that's what's important. Strategies for independence. Uh, diversification of funding is very important to us. When I joined Care International, something like 85% of our money came from DFID. I have a high regard for DFID and their staff, but we needed to become more independent. So we put a lot of effort into growing other sources of funding. Size, I mean, we are, uh, Care International is the third largest international agency in the world. We therefore can be more flexible, and we can and do say no to funding. Advocacy for independence, important, and we do spend a lot of time on that, and withdrawal. We have two examples, care in Iraq, after a dreadful incident for us then, but we pulled out of the country, and in my days with the Red Cross in Burundi, we did the same, for example. Finally, I've only got two more slides, so you won't have to write anything on a piece of paper. Um, rejecting funding from belligerent donors, CARE and other NGOs rejected US and coalition funding associated with the invasion uh, in Iraq, um, but we were still targeted. So I go back to that perception, perception issue. A non-alignment with US food aid policy, CARE USA, I'm very pleased to say, have a policy uh, on transitioning out of US government monetarization programs. Importing food, which we believe destroys local markets. Um, we've taken an independent stance and we've pulled away from that. But we need to be strong. So finally, my conclusions. Current policy trends are eroding our independence uh, and we need to watch this extremely strongly. Um, I've talked already about uh, some of the protection organisations in some of the countries and we've had a lot of discussions along that. Independence is about more than just finances. It's also things like perception. Uh, and it's a means and not an end. We're not here to be independent. We're here to do the best we can, both in an emergency situation and long-term work in all the countries, the 71 countries that we work in. Thank you very much for your time. Exactly 10 minutes. Thank you very much indeed. And now I'll hand over to Bernard Picoult who is Executive Director of the um, Initiative for um, Neglect of 
not the neglect, for the non-neglect of, of non-neglected dis- neglected diseases. <laughs> okay, good evening. Um, of course, it will be probably much more easy to talk about uh, humanitarian aid and independence for me. I spent 20 years with MSF, so I'm quite familiar with this subject, but I was invited to talk about independence, research, and innovation. So I will try to do my best on this topic, and I will use... Uh, uh, the, the organization I'm in charge of, of today, it works for Neglected Disease Initiative as a case study. So just a few slides just to set up the scene of, uh, of, of this issue. Uh, uh, first of all, neglected diseases lie outside of the world market. On the middle of this slide, you have uh, the rectangle representing a huge market, the pharmaceutical market estimated at more than 600 billion a year. But a lot of people are staying totally out of this market. And when we talk about neglected diseases, and particularly the most neglected diseases, in fact, the majority of people are totally out of this market. So we have to have this image in mind to understand the issue. And one of the uh, main consequences of this issue is that uh, uh, even if uh, we are in a period of time of science has made a lot of progress, a lot of new drugs have been developed during the last 30 years, the number is uh, uh, more than 1,500 new treatments developed during the last 30 years. But unfortunately, only 1.3% of those treatments were representing some interest for neglected diseases. It's what is uh, described as a 1090 gap. So 10% of the resources uh, invested in, in uh, research are uh, affected to 90% of the problem of the world. And to illustrate this issue, I just selected one disease, uh, because it's probably one of the best illustrations. It's human African trypanosomiasis, or sleeping sickness, affecting a lot of, of people, 55 million people at risk. It's a fatal disease. When, when you are uh, at, a, at the ad- advanced stage of the disease, you have a 100% chance of dying. The, the treatment today uh, is still, first-line treatment is still melarsoprol, so it's still an arsenic derivative. And when you use this treatment, you know that you will kill one over 20 of your patients. So it really is, uh, is my entry point into, into this story of developing uh, uh, a project to, to develop new drugs for, for, for neglected diseases. Because as an as a executive director of MSF, it was extremely difficult to to have doctors coming back from, from the field, from Uganda, from, uh, from Republic Democratic of Congo, and describing the situation when they inject a drug, they know that they will kill one over 20 of the patients. So today, uh, fortunately, I don't know what's happened with the slide, but uh, uh, today uh, there is a new generation of, uh, of initiative, uh, foundation, NGO, that are trying to address this, this subject of using the, the best science on one side, and transforming this base science in, in, in product, vaccines, uh, diagnosis, uh, treatment for the most neglected diseases. So all, I don't know what happened on the slide, all, all these are, are, are organizations that have been set up during the last 10 years to address this different issue. Uh, the work for neglected diseases is one of these organizations. It was created in 2003. And to uh, set up this uh, initiative, uh, at the origin, uh, MSF was, was one founder, but uh, uh, MSF decided that they would not go alone on this field. 
So we have attracted uh, uh, several groups, and uh, uh, in particular four uh, public research institutions from Brazil, Kenya, Malaysia, and, uh, and India, as well as the Pasteur Institute and, uh, and the branch of WHO in charge of tropical diseases, to take the risk to set up a new initiative with a small coordination in Geneva and uh, with uh, offices uh, uh, all over the world to implement the uh, activity. The vision of this project is to, uh, to develop a, a project which is patients needs driven. So with the, the entry point in our, uh, in, in our strategy is to define the specific needs of the most neglected disease po population. Uh, we are a virtual group, so we have no lab. We use capacities in the private sector, in academic groups, and we bring people together to, to respond to this issue. Of course, we are a non-for-profit uh, organization. Objective is to bring six to eight treatments in ten years. It seems little, but uh, in fact, uh, even for a large pharmaceutical company, it's quite challenging to bring six to eight treatments in ten years. And we have in mind also to build and strengthen existing capacity in endemic country because we have a long-term vision that this kind of activity should be implemented in developing countries. And uh, last but not least, uh, we want to raise awareness because through advocacy we consider that we can identify a long-term solution. So this aspect of, of the uh, problem is also included in, in, our, in our strategy. So today I will not describe the site, but today we have a, a portfolio of 18 projects because we are obliged to start at the discovery stage, so to, to use uh, the, 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 the new aspect of the science and try to translate this, uh, uh, this new knowledge into potential candidates that are first tested in uh, animals, preclinical, then uh, human beings in the clinical studies before going to the, uh, to the patients, which is the end point of uh, of our initiative. So you have to keep in mind that on this process you have this uh, attrition rate, so you have to enter 100 uh, projects at the beginning to be sure that at the end you will have one. Of course we, we are trying to uh, use this concept and, uh, and save time and money. So we have uh, identified now, I want to say we, the NDI, but the other group I've mentioned before are confronted the same situation. We have identified a series of key challenges to address this issue of, of innovation for the most neglected diseases. I will not develop all of them, but I have selected some that are, uh, according to me, related to the issue of independence. So uh, you need to have in mind this concept of, of, uh, of pipelines, so starting from discovery, going to preclinical, clinical, uh, and uh, availability to the patients. And if we start from scratch, it's probably a, a 10, 12 years period of time. In order to succeed, uh, I think we need uh, at least three, uh, three aspects which is important. One is to have access, free access to knowledge and molecules. And really, this subject is, is extremely key for us. We need to be able to have access to the molecules or the knowledge that has been developed by the private groups or the universities, the academic groups. We need to be very innovative uh, in signing partnerships, particularly in the field of intellectual property, because the big issue is intellectual property. So we need to find uh, open sources agreement, patent pools. So I will not enter into the technicality, but here we have a real issue of 
independence, freedom to operate. Extremely important. Another is, uh, issue uh, linked to access uh, is uh, in order to save time uh, in this long process, we, have, uh, we are using a different tactic, which is uh, testing existing drugs that have been developed for other diseases, for fungal diseases, for uh, oncology, and that could be very useful for those tropical diseases. So in this case, we need to have access, free access to these drugs, and being able to test these drugs in animals and then in human beings. So again, uh, we need to be very creative in terms of uh, agreement. And at the end of the day, when we have a new product, we still have to be very uh, independent and creative because we need to be sure that this product will be accessible, affordable, for the most neglected population. So recently, we have developed a new drug for, for malaria, and we have signed agreement with pharma company on a non-exclusive non basis, so non-patented drug, to be sure that several partners will be able to produce, to develop some competition and maintain a large production available for uh, uh, the, uh, the white population. The second topic that is crucial in developing new drugs, is to be able to be in a position to assess the risk-benefit analysis. But I have to say that here I can uh, easily uh, draw some parallel with my previous experience with, uh, with MSF and, and the situation of, 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 uh, of crisis. We were permanently assessing this risk-benefit situation to know if yes or not we can implement our humanitarian activity. So for, to develop new drugs is the same issue. We need to rethink the ethical translation between individuals and collective benefits according to patient needs. Who is responsible for assessing the risk benefit for neglected disease? In the case of melasoprol, have in mind one over 20 of the patients are dying from the drug. So it's not at all the same than uh, trying to develop a new anti-hypertensive drugs, having in mind that already 50 are available. So uh, here we have a big issue, and uh, again we have a long-term vision. We consider that strengthening uh, capacity in endemic countries, and particularly regulatory uh, uh, capacity, is probably the best way to go, because it's really where you are in a good position to decide if yes or no you are, you are ready to take some risk. Third is, of course, uh, uh, the financial aspect. Uh, to do this kind of job, you need to uh, secure uh, funding on a sustainable way. But you need also to be independent on, on this establishment of funding. So our strategy of the NDI is to have a, a, a diversity uh, of funding, mixing uh, 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 money uh, coming from governments, and we have an objective to have 50% of money coming from governments. We have today support from DFID and money coming from uh, individual donors, large foundations, and in addition for the NDI, we have uh, our funding partners, and MSF is, uh, is a generous contr contributor to, to the NDI. But we have in mind that we, in our plan, we need 275 million euros over 10 years. Fortunately, uh, a, a report produced by, by the LSC two years ago demonstra demonstrated that the situation is not it is not so uh, diverse in, in the field of product, new product development partnership because today 
79% uh, of the money uh, invested in this field is coming from philanthropic organization. And I have to say that more than 70% is coming from one group, which is the Bill and Melinda, Melinda Gates Foundation. So it's probably an issue uh, about uh, independence. Who will be able to set up the, the agenda in the future? Okay, to conclude, uh, I, I'm well convinced that independence is a key condition to stimulate innovation for neglected disease. In particular, uh, in order to be able to uh, set up the priority, to decide that the most neglected population, the, the person affected by sleeping sickness, will stay, will remain our top priority. Because if you are not in this position, you will have many reasons to go into another field where you can make money, where you can find more partnership, when you can have more publicity, and so on and so forth. And, and my last message is uh, to address this kind of issue, we need uh, a public leadership. Without governments being in a, a leading position to define priority, to establish funding me mechanism, to set up new rules of the games in terms of intellectual property, in terms of regulatory aspect, will fail. So, uh, we need public leadership, and the only way uh, to get public leadership is to create some tension between the civil society, the patients affected by, by, by the diseases, and, and the decision makers. That's why we need this kind of balance at the end of the day if we want to succeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And our last speaker is Ed Simpson who will be looking at this from an academic perspective. I used to give lectures in here at 9 o'clock in the morning and the audience never looked this awake, so it's nice to see. <laughs> uh, my primary qualification for entering into this debate is six years of ethnographic research into reconstruction programs that were implemented after the earthquake in Gujarat in 2001. And I qualify that I'm an anthropologist and thus something of an interloper in the world of professionalism, codes of conduct, and that I necessarily have a somewhat different perspective on the questions at stake in this debate to those aired so far. Interestingly, Gujarat does not raise the explicit problem of humanitarianism and militarism, for it's a democratic region with a stable government. However, the practices of humanitarian organisations there question in subtle but marked ways the possibilities of independence and neutrality as ideologies of operation and audit. The Gujarat case also illustrates the ways in which the needs of beneficiaries are sometimes quite blindly presupposed by the ethos and orientation of humanitarian organisations. Thus not only is the operational value of independence frequently a chimera but the idea of a needs-driven approach is similarly shown to be little more than a self-fulfilling myth at times. Ask yourselves, is it possible that some organisations are more independent than others? Is it any more appropriate to measure independence as a neutral value, given, say, by the rules laid down by a god of some kind, or indeed the values of Hindu nationalism, which seem, believe it or not, perfectly natural and rational to a great many people. The colour of these statements may surprise you, 
Because thus far, independence has appeared as a rational condition of neoliberalism and the dictates and rhetoric of the global governance agenda, and not as a culturally specific idea with a particular history. However, in Gujarat, it was mostly organisations of the latter kind, such as some of those represented here, which were considered by Gujaratis of all persuasions to be acting inappropriately and thus introducing biased ideologies and political stratagems to the work of reconstruction. This introduces the question of perspective and indeed perception. As an extreme caricature, the two dominant positions in today's independence debate are what we might call the unindependent, those who work in partnerships of various kinds, and the independent. Critics of the unindependent say they have become mere force multipliers in strategic, military and political interventions. More cynical critics say that such humanitarian organisations war with hearts and minds and with sentiment and trust. Still harder-nosed critics, if such a thing is possible, might say that humanitarian aid has become the continuation of war by other means. Liberal democracy is blindly seen as the highest philanthropic gift. Good victims of war, so to speak, are rewarded or at least compensated with humanitarian uh, assistance. The independents, in contrast, see governments and military diplomacy as fundamentally incompatible with their humanitarian aims because strategic belligerent interventions are not conducted on the basis of human need. They undermine the security of populations and, more pragmatically, are dangerous for humanitarian personnel. Between these two positions, as we've heard, are various forms of compromise seen in public-private partnerships, coalitions of interest, networks, and coordinating and umbrella bodies, so on and so forth. From my perspective as an anthropologist, independence inheres as a value differently in different domains, and a number of other points have been similarly muddied. The most obvious one is that separating humanitarianism from military intervention is an important matter of operational policy. It does not mean, and cannot mean de facto, however, that humanitarian intervention is thus simply neutral, as if militarism was the only possible reflection of strategic political interest. My doubts over the practical possibility of neutrality raise two further points that I do not think, despite my job in this discussion, can simply be shrugged off as academic. First, neither humanitarianism nor independence, nor for that matter aid, are absolute or universal principles, but are particular culturally specific ideas with clear histories and intellectual genealogies. To think otherwise and to impose such values unreflexively may, rightly on occasion, be deemed neocultural imperialism. That is not to say, however, that I think humanitarian aid is simply a form of postmodern tank. Secondly, I would ask simply, independence from what? If the answer is independence from the political machinations of government and so forth, then it's relatively clear. Yet this seems a top-down approach to polity because it seems to assume that general populations, the poor and the sick, 
are unaffected or unsympathetic with governments, militias, rival militias, or with global injustice. But on the other hand, could anyone claim to work independently in countries where they intervene? This would seem the strangest claim of all. And here I have to say, bolstered by experience in Gujarat, this pretense to independence seems somewhat naive. How would such an organisation work without local knowledge, local people and information? Are victims who, what and how they know value neutral? Can such organisations straddle like a supreme being and with perfect knowledge and without mishap all divisions, political, ethnic, religious, within their operations, or is there always necessarily compromise? For those who consider independence and neutrality to be either possible or desirable, the Gujarat material throws up a number of interesting problems. First, as I have suggested, is the variable question of sovereignty. In Gujarat, there is a strong government with a very strong Hindu nationalist agenda, which after the earthquake and the initial flurry of rescue teams left for home, had little interest in foreign humanitarian workers. The government managed most of the relief and rehabilitation through existing government networks, essentially sidelining all humanitarian organisations. Those humanitarian organisations which did stay on were apportioned areas of responsibility by the government. They couldn't choose what they wanted to do, either directly through statute or indirectly through the elective affinities of cronyism and public-private partnerships. The reports of such organisations clearly state that their targets were met, codes of ethics adhered to, best practices followed, and so forth. This delighted donors, auditors, and promotion committees. The only way to work independently, given the strength of both government and, importantly, indigenous civil society, was to work on the margins, with marginal people in spaces that necessarily became increasingly marginal precisely because they were tainted with foreign humanitarian interventions. The longer-term effect of these interventions has been to further separate such people, physically and symbolically, incidentally mostly Muslims and low-caste populations, from mainstream society. (coughs) Essentially, this was and is the political will of the nationalist government of Gujarat being put into practice unwittingly by international humanitarian organisations who thought it important to work with independence rather than with engagement and debate. The second point to emerge from this research is that the needs of beneficiaries are not understood independently of the institutional compulsions of humanitarian organisations. In Gujarat, there have been endless discussions about local customs, livelihood generation, empowerment, self-help and credit networks, and so on and so forth. Today, however, such humanitarian concerns seem somewhat quaint and misplaced when the real change to have occurred in the name of post-earthquake reconstruction has been rapid and considerable industrialisation because of generous tax incentives offered by the government who were willing to turn a blind eye to land rights, pollution control and labour law. Simply, no humanitarian saw advocacy, the protection of land or education about industrialisation, migration, landlessness, 
crime or the effects of pollution on agricultural land as a need affected by, of, of those affected by the earthquake. Had the determination of needs been evaluated independently rather than institutionally led with plastic houses and sewing machines, post-earthquake Gujarat might have looked very different today. In Gujarat, as I think elsewhere, if reconfigured, independence could be a productive operational and audit value. Independence should depend not upon isolated actions, on a detached state of mind, or the suppression of subjectivity. Rather, independence should emerge, emerge from engagement, from a situation where pow the powerful, as well as victims, beneficiaries, call them what you will, influence the perceptions of humanitarians to the maximum degree, through their capacity to object, to raise concerns, to interpret things in their own terms, and above all, to have partisan opinions, however political they may be. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed. And I think um, our last speaker has left us with some very interesting points to think about in terms of what do we mean by independence. Um, I don't know if any of our panel speakers want to come back or shall I go straight on to questions? Okay, let, I'd like to open the floor up then to questions. And I, um, if you can give your name and where you're from, and I'll take a few questions at a time. Yes, James. Uh, have we got a microphone? Sorry, if you forgive me. James Putzel, um, I'm the director of the Crisis States Research Center here at the LSE. Um, I think there's a great muddle here at the table, which I would like you to address. Um, I, I was hoping that James Cliffin might have laid out a bit more clearly, or perhaps you could elaborate now. Uh, the humanitarian space is a very special space. You said impartial uh, and neutral. And that's a principle that's been very important in the evolution of conflict since the late 19th century, that we guard a space where there can be assistance to anybody in need on both sides of a conflict, um, regardless of where they stand. It requires no positional stand in relationship to the conflict. That humanitarian space is extremely important and shrinking very quickly um, in the 21st century. Um, I think that... CARE and Oxfam and other NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are involved in development work, coordinating with the World Bank, for instance, coordinating with bilateral agencies, which are agencies of government, they're involved in very important work. It's development work. And in fact, in our research, we'd say development is about state making. And you do take sides. It is about creating um, an, an important impulse for capital accumulation, and there are different classes involved in alliances and political organizations. So I think there has crept into the international uh, developments in great confusion about this. Let's safeguard the good works of MSF, of the International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Um, it's a very important space that has to be kept separate and distinct, and let's not muddle it with the Oxfam's and CARES and whatnot. And I do think that there is a very important role that goes beyond perhaps the traditional ICRC, 
in the work that's being done in developing drugs as well, at trying to carve out this space also in between and, and, and outside of um, interested parties. But I think there's a lot of intellectual confusion and slippage. And CARE, I think, is, is very confused about where it stands, either a humanitarian organization or a development one. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I don't know, James, do you want to respond to that, that there's confusion between how we understand humanitarian space amongst development agencies and um, humanitarian workers, uh, particularly in organizations, as I understand, James, who are doing both development and humanitarian work, like CARE International, for example? I'll try. Um, um, I apologize for the lack of clarity um, in my presentation. Um, I think that... um, what you've just described, um, those humanitarian values, um, is very appealing. Um, and going back to my point about to people who want to help. And it's easy to um, claim that language, that humanitarian language, and use it in your marketing, um, whilst at the same time perhaps not being completely adherent to those values, um, because it brings you money, it brings you business advantages. And I think that um, some of my uh, boss here, Jean-Michel, who's here this evening, um, has worked in Sierra Leone. Sorry, Jean-Michel, I'm going to say this, but it's your story, not mine. I mean, I remember Jean-Michel saying to me that uh, aid organizations talk this language extremely well, that they're extremely eloquent. Um, that, um, but the issue is, is that they've almost become too eloquent, um, whilst at the same time uh, perhaps not in their actions being true to those values and that, that the confusion that's created reduces that humanitarian space. So it's, it's I would say, I guess I'd say it because I'm a marketer, that, uh, that to some degree I think marketing has something to do with this. It's easy to claim something, to put it in a brochure, to put it on a website. It's another thing altogether to do it because um, I'm picking up on the point about um, how difficult it is to, to live up to those values. Um, I've never had the responsibility of doing this work myself. I sit at a desk in London. But from everything I've heard, it's very, very, very difficult in practice to live up to these values that it's not a given thing that you automatically apply. And it becomes more difficult when um, there are those that, that claim those values, but actually, if you like, at the heart of what they're doing are not staying true to them. Sure, thank you. Uh, very interesting question. Thank you. Can you hear me on this? Is this working? Yeah. I can talk, yes, and talk nearer to it. Maybe that's the answer. Um, Let me give you an example of Pakistan, for example. Um, We worked, of course, on the emergency situation after the earthquake in that part of the the world. Um, And we worked with, or at least alongside, the military for a while in that. They had helicopters. We didn't have helicopters. Um, We thought it is far better, and Somalia might be another example you want to raise, far better to actually help people who otherwise would have died. There's no question. The whole emphasis of what CARE does, though, is to work with communities. We pride ourselves that 97% of our staff are local nationals. We've worked in most of these countries for 50 years. You take Sri Lanka, for example, through local partners. We're not going to impose anything on those communities. It's those communities, and in an example like the tsunami, it's easier talk, it's not a conflict situation, although two of the countries were in conflict at the time, but we can talk to the local communities about how they build their own capacity and that, that is what care is all about. 
I don't think there's any confusion. What we're saying is that in an emergency situation, we get in and we save lives, and we did after the tsunami. Um, and to a certain extent, that's not awfully sophisticated. It's actually going in and helping with health or it's water or it's food. But what we do right from the start, and in some conflict situations that's difficult and sometimes impossible right from the start, what we're doing is working with the local communities and building their capacity. Our role is to stay there, in the case of the tsunami, for three years. And I'll give you one example. We moved a lot of people in, in Indonesia who wanted to be moved away from the coast. Uh, because basically they'd seen their children killed in front of them and they were fishing families. They wanted to move inland. We helped them do that. We stayed with them for a year and we negotiated land with the government. We uh, gave them technical assistance for agriculture and now they're successfully settled. That is what it's all about. Somalia is a very interesting one and you could debate this for hours. I have done and I still don't know which side I come out on. Did the Red Cross do the right thing in putting a military convoy with all their food aid going in? Because they certainly didn't get close to the community by doing that and as a result of it, perhaps part of the reason that Somalia is still in the state that it's in now is because of that. Yes, this gentleman here. I'll take these two together. This gentleman here and... Um, the young woman here. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Sonny Daniel. I'm a Nigerian student at City University, a student of international journalism. I I want to still follow up on that question that has been partially um, answered. When journalists are going to the war fronts, sometimes they are embedded with soldiers. And I wonder in your efforts to be independent, if you would reject being embedded with military personnel in your attempt to go to the front line and serve lives. And then um, secondly, before I left Nigeria, I attended some ceremonies where um, the international leader of the Red Cross was in Nigeria soliciting for financial assistance to the local um, branch. And here we are talking about being independent. To what extent uh, can you go in um, rejecting funds from governments, all in an attempt to be seen as being independent? Thank you. Thank you very much. Very pertinent question about can you reject funds um, given by government in order to be seen as independent? Let just take one more question here. My question is for you, James. Hmm. Um, MSF pulled out of Afghanistan in July 2004. Hmm. How does that fit into your impartiality? Because you were making quite a definite stand there about local security. Hmm. Second question is to do with your, and it's going to sound quite derogatory, your publicity machine, <laughs> which allows you to attract a lot of funding from mums and dads, donors, who feel better for giving you money. But if you didn't have that publicity machine and you had to rely on other funds, would you be able to take moral high ground in this argument? Okay, thank you. Right. <laughs> I think, James, are you ready to okay, talk um, about those two? Um, being <laughs> embedded with military forces, um, that's what we choose not to do. So, for example, take one example. Um, it's from many years ago, but so during the war in in Bosnia, we MSF chose not to uh, go with UN military convoys. It really doesn't work <laughs> if you do that. Um, 
Do we turn down funds? Can we turn down funds? Yes, we do. Uh, fortunately today, um, for us, 85% of our funds come from people. Um, we do take funding from governments, but we can choose for what. Now, quite clearly, they can also choose not to give us money. <laughs> it's not, it's, um, but um, uh, if we're offered money to go work in a particular place and we see there's a problem there that would affect our independence or neutrality or impartiality, then we can say no and have them. <coughs> um, and the same thing actually applies to certain types of private funding. So, for example, we will not take funding from arms manufacturers or um, tobacco companies or um, actually the pharmaceutical industry to give some examples because we see issues there. Um, leaving Afghanistan, um, your point was that in, in leaving Afghanistan that that showed a kind of a, perhaps a, a partiality. Um, this is not something which I'm expert on, on the head of fundraising, but I think that we left Afghanistan because it was impossible to continue. And, and it, it's impossible for us to continue our work and our humanitarian work due to a number of factors. Why was it impossible? Because um, the, what we do was not understood by people involved in the conflict. And if it's not understood, if you're seen as being involved in the conflict, the only protection you have is a T-shirt. And five of, uh, as you, I'm sure you know, five MSF people were murdered. Um, that was part of a, a more complicated situation. Um, you know, you, as I think somebody in MSF said, you, you really have the strength of, of the defenseless when you work in these places. And um, yes, in Somalia, and also in Chechnya, we work with armed guards, but even those are token. They're there to stop opportunistic crime. They're not there because of protection from military forces. Um, so it was just impossible. Now, we could talk about why, but leaving is not a, you know, if we're making a point, the point is we can't work here any longer. I really do think it's that straightforward. Um, what's the last point? Um, oh, the marketing machine. That's why we have one. Yeah, um, because we want mums and dads, my mum included, um, to help this work. And if people don't know about it, then they can't support it. And actually, I think a key point for me in the work that I, I've been involved in in MSF is it does give you an opportunity to talk about Congo Brazzaville and the people there. It does give you an opportunity to talk to people about people in places that they otherwise would never hear of because you have that marketing machine. You know, we send out something very dull. It's called a newsletter. It goes to 100,000 people. And in that, we can put in information about people in places that you otherwise would never hear about. And I think, frankly, that's great. So I'm glad we have that marketing machine. Thank you. Um, just three quick comments, if I may make it. Um, when I first went to Somalia... Um, it was in the very early days, 14, 15 years ago, and I saw the worst sights I've ever seen in my life. Uh, there were adults and a number of children dying in front of you. And I think in that scenario, you say, okay, we're going to have to use techniques, or we might have to, to use the military, but let's go and help those people. And I'm quite convinced we saved um, hundreds and thousands of lives by doing that. It's a big issue. Um, do we reject funds? Yes, we do. Uh, we reject funds from institutional donors and corporate donors on a regular basis. We're very uh, professional about whether we accept money and what we accept it for. I would suggest that in the case of Pakistan, using military helicopters, which were part of the process in Pakistan, we probably hit the right balance, but it's very difficult. 
Thank you. I'll take a couple more questions. Yes, please. Oh, sorry. Could you say who you are, where you're from? Um, can you use the microphone? Thank you. Shall I start from start again? Yes. <laughs> My name is Anne McFerrin. I'm a journalist, and I've reported from some of the, for, from some of these of these areas. And it's it's a question to do with the media and marketing. I think they may not be able to at the back. Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. My name is Anne McFerrin. I'm a journalist, and it's can you hear me? Yeah. yeah, okay. It's a related question, which is for the um, drugs for neglected diseases. I was curious to know how much the media's focus on HIV-AIDS detracts from the potential funding of these neglected drugs. I'm delighted to hear that you get so much money from Bill and Melinda Gates, but I'm very aware as a journalist that these kinds of stories very rarely get into the mainstream media. I have huge problems selling them, whereas HIV-AIDS stories sell relatively well to editors. Thank you. And one more question here. Um, <coughs> my name is Howard. I work with Jeffrey at CARE. Um, just to sort of put, put that up front. Um, a comment, but also a question to all of the panel, um, and sort of following on from James Putzel's question as well, is the extent, and also particularly the um, anthropologist or was it ethnographic perspective that we got, um, the extent to which humanitarian space is actually a, um, a concept and a, to some degree, an, a Western concept, and the extent to which that is actually understood or perceived as a reality on the ground, either by national staff of, be it MSF, be it Oxfam, be it CARE, or indeed any NGO, or, and then particularly local communities in the areas where we work. Um, at the moment, we're sponsoring with a number of other agencies research in Uruzgan and Paktir in Afghanistan to understand what is the nature of humanitarian space for us, what enables us to operate in these parts of Afghanistan given the current trends with the conflict, with the, the sort of integrated approach that the donors and the military are pushing. Um, we're, we're really, and it's really unpacking that concept of humanitarian space and it's really nothing like the kind of clean ap academic construct that, that you described, um, James, at least in these kinds of war zones. The fact is much more complex than that. And the factors that are affecting our ability to work in war zones and local communities' perceptions of us as agencies and our work, and that includes our national staff, is, are also multiple. Um, and so the kind of careful negotiation that happens across different areas in Afghanistan, for example, is very different and varies. And some does bear some relation to some of the notions that the concept of humanitarian space implies that are, uh, and that are ones that we would be perhaps more comfortable with. But others are much less seductive in terms of either marketing or a, a nice uh, liberal concept like humanitarian space. Um, and from my own experience from Afghanistan, I would say, for example, one year back, the, the levels of instability and violence across much of southern Afghanistan um, meant that there was a lot of competition between local level commanders who were vying for control and being able to demonstrate that they could, for example, kill an aid worker and get away with it. 
whereas as areas passed into sort of stability, as in control by one of the insurgent groups, be it Taliban or, or whatever, then access and negotiated access became possible. Um, but that, and, and that sort of goes to, to highlight the kind of quite brutal reality of humanitarian space, that it's not, um, yeah, that it's, that it's fragile and that it's not the nice um, or a sort of simple uh, thing that perhaps the term first implies. So I mean, a couple of points, just that it's very context-specific and dynamic, fragile, and the notion that we may understand our agency in, sat here in London as being um, one kind of agency or another, I think the way that the agency is perceived on the ground is very different. I'd be interested to hear from the people on the panel what their experience on, at the in-country level has been, you know, to what degree humanitarian space is understood okay, by thanks. national staff in your agencies. Yeah, okay, so I think I'll, just those two points. Maybe, Banna, you can respond on the AIDS versus does it detract from neglected diseases? Then I yeah, have quick responses will, from the panel on the issue of how... I, I will have a provocative response uh, because I have no problem to include uh, HIV AIDS uh, into neglected diseases. Uh, because uh, the huge majority of affected population uh, is living in, uh, uh, in, uh, in developing countries and it has not at all uh, the level of response that is uh, uh, sufficient compared to the situation. So today, uh, and including, uh, I, I would say, the issue of research and innovation, because today there is not uh, the tool adapted to the situation that is uh, currently prevalent in a large part of Africa. So I think there is a huge neglect of research for those populations. And, and, and not only research, because I can uh, just uh, give an example. Today, uh, if you visit an hospital in Nairobi, you will find... 50% of the people dying from uh, HIV uh, opportunistic infection in very dramatic situations. So I think the neglect is, is still on HIV AIDS. Maybe it's a way we talk about these issues that is not appropriate, but uh, there is a huge neglect. So I have no problem to class, uh, to include HIV AIDS in a, in a, into this, uh, this environment. But because I want just to talk a little bit about independence and humanitarian space, I will yeah. just use yeah. my, my previous experience. Just according to me, the main and big issue of uh, independence and, uh, and humanitarian space is to uh, be able to preserve a certain capacity to, to make choices uh, in, a, in, a, in, a field, uh, in a field condition. So to, to develop some freedom to operate uh, and to assess the specific needs of, of population and try to uh, respond adequately to those needs. Economy is, is the key issue of independence. So sometimes it's, it's financial, very often it's, uh, it's politics, uh, very often it's linked to this assessment of, uh, of the risk and benefit. There is, it's not at all a single question with a single response. My 20 years of experience of, of, of humanitarian uh, 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 action is that this question should be a, a daily question, more than daily question, a, a question on a, on a, uh, on a, uh, 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 on a, in front of most of the circumstances that you, you are confronted with in, in the field. So I think there is a combination of the, the big debate, the big issue uh, that need to be present uh, to define probably the principles. But after well, the, the 
most difficult is to is to implement independence uh, in uh, in your uh, uh, in your uh, uh, your field uh, uh, activity. Thank you, Ed. Do you want to comment on anything so far? Yes, I will just very briefly. I, I, I liked your characterization of uh, humanitarian space as a dynamic environment, and I certainly see much of what you've said in my experience in Gujarat, but importantly, I'm not attached to any particular organization apart from I was here and now I'm at another university. And I, I think the point I was trying to make is that the epistemes of knowledge that operate within certain kinds of non-governmental organizations are fundamentally incompatible with equivalent organizations that you would find in India, for example, or in Pakistan, which are driven by particular religious ideologies which don't work when they come together. And the consequence of that, both in, in parts of Pakistan and in, in Gujarat, was the parallel streams of funding, parallel streams of knowledge, and in effect parallel streams of development sprang up as as, as these things sort of came together, parted, came together and parted. And the result of that has been a, a sort of bifurcation of clear elements of society from that process. So that's all I want to say. So thank you. Okay, so one, last que one last question and then we'll have a response, quick response from the panel. Please keep your question short. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name's Amina and I'm um, a doctor and doing a uh, master's in public health. Um, and also work with MSF. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I should have said that. But um, I wanted to ask about uh, drug development. Um, I was struck by the example you gave about doctors um, facing this dilemma of injecting a drug that they know is going to kill one in 20 of their patients um, as the first ethical principle of medical practice first is the first do no harm. Um, but I was wondering in, 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 your, in your field, how, uh, what kind of tools do you have to... Um, to uh, in encourage innovation when in this day and age uh, funding streams are kind of channeled more than ever by market forces. How do you encourage or the, the big funders or pharmaceutical companies or, or researchers to devote time and energy and funding to these neglected diseases apart from maybe uh, kind of using emotional blackmail, <laughs> um, say um, evoking principles of corporate social responsibility or something? Oh, it's just okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's a question for Bernard. Yeah. yeah, of course, it's, uh, it's one of our uh, uh, main challenges to, to convince partners to invest their energy uh, into this field. And when I say partners, to, to be successful with this kind of initiative, we need to attract the private partners, so the pharma companies, the biotech companies, as well as the uh, academic groups. So, so it's, it's really the key challenge so in setting up. Uh, uh, initiatives such as DNDI, of course, we offer some space, we, we facilitate the activity, we coordinate the activity, we attract resources, but this is why at the end of my presentation I uh, clear, uh, clearly mentioned that uh, the long-term solution is linked to uh, public leadership, to uh, sustainable uh, uh, funding, to strengthening capacities in, in, in countries, because really in terms of responsibility, it's a responsibility of the states to develop uh, uh, the tools, to develop uh, the, the treatment or the vaccines that are necessary for the most, uh, uh, most affected and most neglected population. So we have to keep, we have not to lose uh, from our mind that uh, this political responsibility 
And uh, we could facilitate the process. We could develop a model that can be uh, duplicated and can, can be reinforced by incentives, measures, but we need a leader, and a leader should be the state. Okay, thank you very much. I think that's a very good point to finish on. Um, I'd like to thank you ver the speakers very much for their presentations this evening, and uh, which, uh, I mean, I, I have to say in all my experience at LSE of chairing public debates, I've never seen an audience so seated. Usually there's a sort of slight departure somewhere in the middle, but everybody's been very, very riveted, I think, by the discussion and provoked. Um, I'd like to thank you all very much for very interesting presentations and um, to Emma Médecins Sans Frontières for co-organising, um, for all our organisation for getting this evening together. Uh, there will be a reception in the atrium in the old building, old building and so that, if you go to the atrium you'll be able to catch up with the speakers there. Thank you. Thank you.